You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.church. And a good word it is. Stonegate, how are we doing this morning? Good. Sounds like we're ready for Christmas. All right, let's do it. Uh, If you are new with us today, my name is Rodney, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we're just praying for you today that the Lord would meet you in all the ways that your soul needs this morning. So we're just, we're asking the Lord for that. And if you will, at some point during the service, uh, fill out this card. It should be in the seat backs in front of you. It just says connect on it. At the end of the service, we'll pass around an offering basket. And if you'll just make sure you put that card in the basket, um, that would help us follow up with you and serve you going forward, which we would just find it to be such a joy to do. And uh, we try to be really straightforward with what it is that we feel like the Lord's called us to. And the way we say it is we enjoy Jesus and we make disciples. And we would just love to have you as a part of that work here. And this would help us connect uh, us and you together. So if you'll make sure you do that for us, um, that would be uh, such a good thing uh, this morning. So uh, today uh, we are finishing up our set of sermons called Seeing Jesus in the Old Testament. Uh, We started this uh, set of sermons several months ago, and uh, every time that I've introduced uh, a sermon in it, I've done it the same way, just by by reminding us of the underlying conviction of this set of sermons, which is uh, we, as followers of God, need the whole Bible to become whole Christians. We need all the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, the whole Bible to become a whole Christian. And, And the reason that we need the whole Bible is because the whole Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, are all telling one grand story about one great person, and his name is... Jesus, right? That, that's been the whole point of this fall is, is making sure that when we're reading the story of the Bible, we are seeing it's telling one story about one person and his name is Jesus. So uh, all fall, we have just been working through the Old Testament, um, learning together what it looks like to see Jesus on every page of the scriptures. So today we are wrapping up this set of sermons and uh, I want to start um, as we do that, by inviting you into a uh, just, it's an area that ha- has been one of serious disagreement and difficulty for Laura and I, really from the outset of our marriage. Um, it's the area that, that is known as movie selection. I don't know if you've ever experienced that with somebody before, uh, but this has been an area of long-standing disagreement. Um, I lean really hard toward movies with a high body count. Uh, that's my criteria for a movie. Is it uh, high, high, what's the body count? That's, that's my criteria. I love epic tales with the high body count. So give me Gladiator, give me Braveheart, uh, give me Lord of the Rings, give me those sorts of movies. That's, that's what I like. And if you have a problem with that, if you don't like that, um, you want to talk about that, feel free to email me. We can talk about that for days if you want. My email address is jimmy.needham at stonegate. I'd, I'd love to chat with you about that. But I, I lean hard in, in, in this direction. I'm on the extreme end of that spectrum that way. Laura, on the other hand, is in the extreme direction the other way. She sits way over there on the other extreme. And I remember... Early on in our marriage, she would invite a group of ladies over, and they would be in our living room watching a movie. And a couple of times, I made the grave mistake of walking in that living room in the big climatic scene. And I'll never forget walking in there. I'd see a room full of ladies, each holding their personal Kleenex box. And those ladies were just weeping. I mean someone's obviously just died. 
And, and then I would look up from, from these ladies weeping up to this screen, and I would see two people hugging. And I'm just trying to figure out. I, I just, I'm honestly looking at the moment trying to figure out how is that, th- those two people hugging, producing this? How, how, how can that happen? And then a couple of years later on Valentine's Day, I took Laura to see uh, the notebook. That happened. And uh, the story began, and the story starts to unfold. The characters are introduced. The plot begins to develop. Uh, You know, conflict is introduced into the story. The tension begins to build. And eventually, we climb our way up the mountain to that climatic moment. And the strangest thing started to happen. I got this lump in my throat. <laughs> Involuntarily, tears began to trickle. They started to trickle down. I look over at Laura and I'm like, you did bring those Kleenexes, right? That, that box, you, you've got it. It, it. it happened in that moment. Now, what did I learn in, in that theater on that Valentine's Day? I, I learned that when you come into a story in the climatic scene, it makes that scene very anticlimactic. Without the, without the background, without the buildup, stories just have this way of being robbed of their power and impact. But if, if you make the journey with the story, right? If you come back to the beginning and, and you start with a great story and you get the background, you get the buildup, this tension introduced, conflict introduced to the story, then when you get to the big moments, they have a way of exploding with power and meaning and significance. And the same is true with the Christmas story, the greatest story ever told. The same is true. Without the background and build up, the big moment both of Jesus' coming and of Jesus' cross are robbed of their power, meaning, and significance. I actually think it's one of the reasons why we oftentimes experience Christmas, right? We just move right by the Christmas story without it actually moving us. I think one of the reasons is that we naturally assume that the story starts in Bethlehem. But that's not the beginning of the story. The story doesn't start in a manger, it starts in a garden. So I'd like to begin there this morning. And I would like to just walk through the story with you, starting all the way at the beginning, just so so we can get a sense of what's the background to Bethlehem. What's the background? What's the buildup? Where is the, the, the conflict introduced and the tension created? So that when we get to Bethlehem, that the story can explode with power and meaning and significance for us. So the story starts all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God. Four words into the story, we are introduced to the main character of the story, God. The story doesn't start with man, it starts with a maker, with with God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God, who, who has always been, is now creating all that is. The vastness of the universe, the beauty of a sunset. Uh, then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, God creates our first parents, and he puts them in a perfectly prepared garden. Then later in Genesis 1, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, he pronounced over it, it is very good. 
There's the beauty of sex without the perversion of lust. There's the goodness of food without the perversion of gluttony. There's rest without laziness. There's possessions without greed. It's an amazing thing. In the garden, God gifted our first parents with everything their souls needed to be satisfied. Then in Genesis 2.15, he gives our first parents a basic command to worship and obey him. And then that basic command is followed by one prohibition, just one. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. All of my creation is there for you to satisfy your soul, to, to enjoy my gifts as a way of enjoying me. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, this is where the story starts. And the start could not be any better. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, are in a garden, naked, unashamed, enjoying God's vast creation, and most importantly, enjoying God himself. It's a beautiful start to the story. But then comes Genesis 3. In Genesis 3, we meet Satan, the snake. And it took the snake a total of six verses to convince our perfectly satisfied parents that they were starving that the consequences of sin wouldn't be that bad. I mean, maybe bad, but not, not, not that bad. But when our first parents bit into the forbidden fruit, hell rushed out. Through the window of that first sin, guilt, fear, shame, hiding, disease, murder, death, racism, war, all of that came crashing in. God's creation, although still beautiful, was now broken. Shalom, the perfect peace that God had created, the perfect garden that he had prepared, shalom has now been shattered by sin. And if you read forward in the story from Genesis chapter 3, it is amazing how fast sin spreads. Genesis chapter 4, verse 8, one chapter later, just a few chapters later, Cain spoke to his brother Abel. So, so Cain, with his brother, this is not some, some, some distant enemy. Cain spoke to his, Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. That's one chapter later. And from there, the world just kept sinking further and further down into sadness. The good world of Genesis 1 and 2 sank deeper into sin, so deep into sin that in Genesis chapter 6, God sent a flood to start over, to start over with Noah and his family. How long do you think Noah and his descendants were faithful to the Lord? About two hours. That, that, that's how long. Sin and sadness kept spreading. And by the time you get to Genesis chapter 11, the story of the Bible has its reader asking, is there any hope? Is there any way all that's gone wrong can be put back aright? Is there any hope? And it's there on the pages of these sin-soaked, blood-stained pages of Scripture. It's right there that we begin receiving these unlikely, plot-building, tension-creating promises from God. And what I want to do over the next few minutes is just walk you through a few of those promises. 
that in the midst of the wreckage of this world, these promises that the Lord begins to deliver, these tension-building promises. So I want to walk you through three or four. The first promise is found in Genesis chapter 3. The chapter containing the first sin also contains the first promise. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? The moment sin began to spread, God began to speak. Speaking promises. Promises of hope, of restoration, of renewal. And you find this first promise in a very unlikely place. It's contained in the curse God pronounces over Satan, the snake. And you see it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. So now what God says right there in the first half of Genesis 3.15, what God says here, the rest of the Bible shows. Uh, War has erupted. Satan now is hell-bent on keeping as many people as possible away from God. If you want a, a, a good example of this, read the first two chapters of Job. You'll see the war that we have all been born into. But it's that last phrase that, that I want you to notice. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He, the, 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 her offspring, he shall bruise your head, shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, this is the first whisper of a promise in the Bible. It's the first promise you're going to find contained in the scriptures. The first whisper of God's unshakable commitment to make sure that sin and the snake don't have the last word. This is the first whisper of these promises. So God comes and says in Genesis 3.15, One will come from woman, and yes, Satan, you will bruise his heel. You will hurt him, but he is going to crush your head. Now, I just, I love this promise in, in this place in the scriptures because in the very chapter where the, where the snake seduces our first parents into sin, you have this promise. You have God saying, there is one coming who will be a snake crusher. The snake crusher is on the way. And the snake crusher, he's going to stomp the head of the snake and put back together what sin has broken. Um, I, I love this little children's uh, book. It's called The Biggest Story. Uh, the Biggest Story. And in this little section of the big story of, of the Bible, it, here's its, its way of framing it. Talking about Genesis 3.15, uh, the author says this, God promised that one of Eve's children would someday, eventually, sooner or later, crush the head of that nasty snake. Nobody knew when or how, but she would have a child to put things right. Now, the promise in Genesis 3.15 is vague. If you picture the literally thousands of Old Testament promises, if you picture them as each a piece of a puzzle promise, this is just the first of many pieces to come. But, but all we know when we walk out of the garden is that someday, eventually, sooner or later, a snake crusher would come. There's our first promise. But it's not the only promise. The next big promise comes a few chapters later in Genesis chapter 12. Flip there if you've got your Bible out. Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, Abraham, I'm gonna make of you a great nation. 
And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what do we learn here in Genesis 12? Well, in Genesis chapter 3, the promise of a snake crusher is vague. Literally, anyone alive, uh, by the time you get to Genesis 12, could be the one who would crush the head of the snake, right? So, so it's a very vague promise. But, but what we have in Genesis 12 is this very wide promise now narrows down to one man, Abraham, in one particular family. Uh, we know that the snake crusher will be one of Abraham's descendants. So, so, the promise narrows down to just one family. That's what's happening in Genesis 12. But in another way, the content of the promise, it narrows down to one man and one family, but the content of the promise widens to the whole world. It is now a worldwide promise. So, so God comes to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make a great nation of you. But Abraham, my blessing of you was never meant to terminate on you, to, to end on you. I'm going to bless you so that that blessing can now spill over to the ends of the earth, to every nation upon earth, to, to people of every nation, tongue, and tribe. But what Genesis 12 shows us is that God's promise of a snake crusher, that snake crusher will also be a nation blesser. He is going to be one who will bless the nations. Now, let me linger here because this passage actually shows us one of the problems with the promises of God. It's a problem that Abraham and Sarah felt. It's a problem that the people of Israel felt. And it's a problem that you and I feel when it comes to the promises of God. And here's the problem. The promises of God so often feel absolutely impossible. They just feel impossible. And this was the problem with this promise uh, with Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah, here's the problem. God's going to make a great nation out of them. There's the promise. Here's the problem. They had no kids. And it's not just that they didn't have any kids. It's that they couldn't have kids. They had been trying. They were still trying. But the only thing growing for Abraham and Sarah was their age. By the time you get to Genesis chapter 18, Paul looks back upon Abraham and Sarah in, uh, in Genesis 18, and he says this about them. They were so old, they were as good as dead. Now, I don't know how old that is, but that's old. If somebody says you're as good as dead, you are old, so, right? And God is promising them, I'm going to give you a child. It would be the equivalent of you bumping into an 85-year-old couple. They have been barren. They are childless. And they look at you and say, we are still trusting God for a child. Now, what would you feel if they said that to you? You would feel impossibility, wouldn't you? You would feel like there is no way that this is possible. This, this cannot happen. And that's the way Abraham and Sarah felt. It felt so impossible to them that when God reaffirms the promise of a child to them, that when he says in Genesis 18, hey, in a year from now, you're gonna have a boy. When he says that, Sarah from the tent just laughs. She, she just chuckles, God, have you lost your mind? I am as good as dead, as good as dead. People don't have kids, right? Now, why did Sarah laugh? Well, it's because the, pro the, the promise felt impossible. Sarah's hope had shrunk down to what is humanly possible. 
she saw no way for God to make good on his promise. Have you ever been there? You look at the reality of your life, the promises of God over here, and you're just like, there's no way. There is no way that God will ever, ever make good on that promise. That promise is as good as dead. Well, a year later, Abraham had a son. His name was Isaac. Isaac had a son. His name was Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons, uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they eventually journeyed down to Egypt for the sake of food. But they were soon, the whole family was soon forced into slavery. But after 400 years in Egypt, God freed Israel. And he eventually brought them back to the land he had promised. It's a, it's a metaphor of the garden. He is bringing them back into the land of promise, back into the garden, back into that land that he promised Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And after he brought them back into the land, the people soon thereafter asked God for a king. So God gave them Saul. And if you remember Saul, Saul looked really great on the outside, but on the inside, he was really, really bad. So he didn't last long. And then God brought about David. And David was the exact opposite. He didn't look impressive on the outside, but on the inside, he was great. He had this huge heart for God. He was Israel's greatest king. But like all of our Old Testament heroes, David's feet were made of clay. But toward the end of David's life, God came to David and made David a promise. And here was the promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, David, you sh who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne, David, your throne shall be established forever. Now, this prophecy does what almost every Old Testament prophecy does. It takes two threads and it weaves these two threads together. Here is thread one. Thread one is a current promise for, for the situation in that day and time. So if you look at this promise in 2 Samuel 7, much of that dealt directly with the current situation, that David would have a son, his name would be Solomon, and Solomon would be the next king. And Solomon, as the next king, would go on to build a house for God. Uh, but he would go on to then commit terrible sin and be disciplined by God. So much of 2 Samuel 7 is around Solomon. Uh, that's one thread, uh, this current promise. But the other thread is not the current promise, but the distant promise. And prophecies in the Old Testament weave both of those two things together. Current promise with a distant promise. So there's also in this passage, uh, this thread that deals with the distant future. There will be, not, not Solomon, there will be a distant descendant of David who will usher in God's kingdom, then rule over that kingdom forever. There's that promise in this passage, that one day one of David's sons would be the forever king. The forever king. The snake crusher of Genesis 3 
will be the nation, nation blesser of Genesis 12, and that man will also be the forever king of 2 Samuel 7. As the forever king, he will subdue all rebellion. He will secure every border and he will eradicate the very presence of sin from this world. That's the promise of the forever king. And unlike David, who David was the greatest king in Israel, he reigned for 30 years. It was the greatest 30 years of, of probably of Israel's existence. But it was only 30 years. And this king, this forever king, will not have a 30-year reign. It will be a forever reign. If you're in this king's kingdom, this forever king's kingdom, you can, you can lay your head down at night. You can go to sleep at night knowing that when you wake up in a million years from now, in a billion years from now, you'll be safe under the reign and watch of this good-hearted king. It's a promise of the forever king. Now, as you read forward in the story from 2 Samuel 7, here is what you find. You find a roller coaster. This is what the people of God are on post 2 Samuel 7. They are on a roller coaster. The roller coaster takes them up with this rising anticipation. They get to the top of the hill and then they fall down deep into the pit of disappointment. Then they come back up with rising anticipation. Then they fall back down into the pit of disappointment. And you find this over and over and over again in Israel's history. Here comes Solomon. Solomon looked great. He's wise. He's rich. He's got everything you could possibly want. Maybe this is the forever king 2 Samuel is talking about. Maybe this is the one that was promised. Maybe Solomon is it. Maybe he is the one to establish God's kingdom forever. But Solomon also had feet of clay. Here comes Josiah. Josiah discovers the book of the law. He reads the law and he repents. He, he leads the nation toward repentance and revival breaks out in Israel. If you were a part of Israel at that time, you would be thinking, maybe this is the one. Maybe this is the one we've been waiting for. Maybe this is the forever king. Uh, but Josiah, like all of our Old Testament heroes, had feet of clay. But, but this is the pattern. A rising anticipation. Maybe this one would be the snake crusher, nation builder, for, blesser, forever king. Maybe this one would be it. Rising anticipation, falling down into the pits of disappointment. Now at this point in the story, here's what we know. We know what we're waiting on. We know at this point we're, we're waiting on the long promised one. We're waiting for a snake crusher who will stomp the head of the serpent and restore what's been lost to sin. We're waiting on the nation blesser who will, who will pour blessing into people from every nation, tongue, and tribe. We're waiting on the forever king who will establish God's kingdom and then rule over that kingdom forever. And that kingdom is going to be a place where people just like you and I can flourish forever. We're waiting on that one. But there's one more promise that I want you to see. And this comes a little later in the Old Testament, all the way in the book of Isaiah. If you want to flip to Isaiah 53. By the time you get to Isaiah 53, Israel's kings have failed them. And the whole kingdom of Israel has, has now fallen. 
And the people of God were deported. They were ripped out of the land. It's a a metaphor. It's another sort of living metaphor of what happened in Genesis chapter 3. They're taken again from the garden. They're taken again from the land that God had promised to them because of their sin. And there in exile, being disciplined by God for their sin, God gave another stunning piece of the promise puzzle. Isaiah 53 For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one. To his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah shows us that the forever king is also a unique king. Think about what you expect of all kings. Every king you have ever known, when war breaks out, when trouble happens, every king you have ever known looks at their people and they look at the people and say, now people, you, you go forward and you fight for me. But not this king, not the forever king. This king says, no, my people, you rest, let me do the work. I'll live the life that you should have lived and I'll die the death that you deserve to die. I'll be pierced for your transgressions. All of your iniquities will come crashing down upon me. I'll be despised, rejected, acquainted with grief. I'll be a man of sorrows. I'll be stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. I'll stand in your place and for your sin. Isaiah 53 shows us that the snake crusher, he'll be the nation blesser. And the nation blesser will be the forever king. And the forever king will also be our curse bearer. He will be the one who will take the crushing weight of our sin, all that our sin deserves. And it will all fall on this curse bearer to reopen the way back to God. Okay, so now. We're coming now in the story to the end of the Old Testament, the end of the first two-thirds of the story, two-thirds of the Bible. Now, think about the primary job of the Old Testament. The the Old Testament's primary job is preparation. The, The primary job of the Old Testament is to establish the setting, to insert the tension. The world's been invaded and wrecked by sin. And through the, through the window of that one sin in Genesis 3, hell has rushed into God's good creation. The Old Testament has inserted the tension and it's developed the character, the long-awaited one. 
It's developed the character that we're waiting on, the, the snake crusher, the nation blesser, the forever king and curse bearer. And as the Old Testament closes, the people of God are maybe in their deepest pit of disappointment, their deepest pit of despair. They are in exile, in exile, and they are yearning and crying out to God, God, how long? This is the cry of the Psalms, Lord, Lord, how long? Will you ever fulfill your promises? Will you ever make good on the promises that you've given us? God, how long? And then with the last word of Malachi, silence. Four hundred and fifty years of silence. The Old Testament closes. And for 450 years, not a single word from God to his people. Despair was in the air. Hope in the long promised one was dying. 450 years. That's longer than there's been in America. 450 years of life in the dark. And I, I wonder how many of us feel like we're living in the dark today. Hope just seems to be hanging by its last thread. Like Israel, we, we feel deep down in our soul that God is overpromised but underdelivered. And we find ourselves crying out to the Lord to fix what's been broken, to bring back that child that's in the far country, to, for, for God to meet us in our loneliness, to, to give us newfound freedom from sin that just feels so deep and habitual that, that it feels enslaving. Maybe like Israel, you're crying out, God, how long? How long, O oh Lord, will, will you, God, will you ever remember your promises? And all you hear back is silence. The people of Israel know what it feels like to stumble in the darkness. 450 years of deafening silence. But in the darkness, God was at work. In the silence, the God who controls the hearts of kings in the course of history brought about Alexander the Great. He went on to conquer most of the known world, infusing the world with Greek culture. By the time of his death in 323 BC, the world just sort of felt Greek. And as Greek power faded, another power rose, Rome. 
By 63 BC, Rome dominated the world, ushering in a 200-year period of stability known as the Pax Romana. And where the Roman army traveled, roads followed. So Rome carved roads into every part of the known world, making travel faster and safer than it had ever been. God was working even in the darkness. During that 450 years of silence, God was setting the stage for the climatic scene in the story. Thanks to Alexander the Great, a Greek-feeling world was ready for a Greek New Testament. And thanks to Rome, Christians could travel safely throughout the known world to spread it. And after centuries and centuries of yearning and pleading and waiting, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Like a shaft of light into utter darkness, the New Testament announces Jesus as the long-awaited one. Do you you remember how the New Testament opens? It, It opens with a genealogy. The New Testament goes to great lengths to help us see the people in Jesus' family tree. In his family tree, we find a branch called Adam. In his family tree, we find a branch named Abraham. In his family tree, we find a branch called David. The New Testament reveals Jesus as the snake crusher. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He disarmed the rulers and authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He's the one who in his death defanged the snake, destroyed his works, and put him to open shame. The New Testament reveals Jesus as the nation blesser. Through this son of Abraham, all the nations will be blessed. Do you remember how the the angels announced Jesus? And the angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Through Jesus, the long-promised nation blesser, joy will flow to all the peoples. John gives us a glimpse. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what nation blessing looks like. People of every nation, tongue, and tribe with their forever king flourishing. The New Testament reveals Jesus as the forever king. 
Here's the summary of Jesus' first recorded sermon. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand because the forever king is here. And the New Testament closes with this picture of Jesus, the forever king coming back to finish what he started. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flaming fire and on his head are many diadems and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and tattooed on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's our forever King securing every border of his kingdom for his people. The New Testament reveals Jesus as the curse bearer. Jesus came in a way that no one expected, as a suffering servant. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And through his suffering, he bore the curse of our sin. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So for every person waiting in the darkness, Christmas, the scene of the manger, Christmas, is God's guarantee that he will make good on every last promise. When you can't see it, when all you have are tears, when all you can do is cry out to God for help, Christmas is God's guarantee that he will make good on every last promise. So church, as we wait for the second coming of Jesus, when the forever king comes back to finish what he began, oh church, let us not lose heart. Let's allow Christmas, the climatic scene, God in a manger, let's allow it this morning to inject fresh hope into our heart. Amen.
Let's pray together. I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you the things that would be most helpful this morning, to wipe away the things that wouldn't be. I just want to give you a moment to allow the Lord to speak to you. If this morning you came in and it feels like you're in that 450 years of just utter darkness. Then Christmas is a reminder to you this morning. God will make good on his promises. Even even those promises that seem impossible that God will make good on those. Christmas is God's guarantee. And for some of us in the room, we are not in on those promises yet. To be in on the promises require you to be in Christ, where all the promises come true. And so for some this morning, the, the, the step that needs to happen is that first decisive step toward Jesus. That step where you turn from your sin and you throw your life upon the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Where you rest and you trust in the work of Jesus for you. Some of us, it's that decisive moment when we hold up our lives to God. And we we say to God, here I am. I am trusting in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus to reopen the way to you. Oh God, here I am trusting Jesus. And to all who come to God like that with the empty hands of faith, God this morning stands ready to receive, ready to have. You can walk out of here in those promises. And if that's you this morning, if the Lord has you in that place where where you are yearning, reaching out, ready to make that decisive step toward God, you can just do that right there where you are. Just from your heart to God, you can say, here's my life. God, I'm trusting Jesus. Save me. Rescue me. And with every head bowed this morning, if if that's you, if this morning is that moment when you're taking that decisive step, Would you mind just looking up at me and raising your hand just where I can make eye contact with you and see you, if that's you? If that's you this morning, taking that decisive step toward Jesus. Yeah. Any others this morning? Yeah. Yeah, any others? Yeah, I see you, brother. 
Any others this morning? Yeah, I see you. Mm -hmm. So if you raised your hand, the most important thing you can do this morning is as soon as we finish, we're going to have post-service prayer just right up here in front of the stage. And if you'll make sure you come and see one of our uh, guys in our prayer team or one of our elders will be up here, we want to start that journey with you. We want to pray for you this morning, encourage you this morning. So make sure you meet us up here as soon as we're done. So Father, we are grateful for the story. We are grateful for the story that takes us to Bethlehem where you remind us that, that every promise you have made, you will be good for. And Father, as we wait for you to come back and finish what you began 2,000 years ago, God, would you help us hold on to hope? Help us hold on to it. And it's in your good name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.